The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 89. This is the special 2021 yearbook episode of The Hearing, where we have looked back over the course of the last year and all of the interviews and work that we've done, and we have taken excerpts from our favourite episodes to showcase to you exactly the sort of year that 2021 was. And what sort of year was 2021? Well, I think that 2021 was a year in which we saw a deepening of the conversations that started in 2020 with the seismic events that went on in that year. So this is the year that we sort of dug into those issues, we dug into COVID and um, we dug into social justice in a much deeper and a much more nuanced way. And I think that gets kicked off with the episodes that we've chosen from Yasmin. So the three um, interviewees that we're going to showcase in this episode from Yasmin are Lady Hale, um, who was an absolute pioneer um, for the role of women in the law as equal partners. We're going to have an excerpt from the episode with Laura Bates and her work on the Everyday Sexism Project. And then finally, Yasmin spoke to Freddie McConnell about his incredibly important and interesting journey um, in trans rights and fatherhood. So three really deep social issues um, and three really amazing interviews that go alongside that. I think that If there is a theme which unites the episodes that we did this year, it's the idea that truth and facts are actually essential, not biased opinions or alternative facts, but what is really true. And that is um, touched on everything, I think, from these social issues all the way through to the work that we do as lawyers, where we understand that facts are essential, even culminating in some philosophical discussions we had this year about how can you have a democracy when decisions are not being taken based on facts. Um, I think that the most uplifting and exciting episodes about that theme are probably the ones from Joe, actually, and his work in the legal tech space. And he spoke to Federico Ast, Stevie Giassi and Andy Wishart this year. And what I love about Joe's interviews is that all three of these people are so incredibly interesting, yes, but also innovative and entrepreneurial. And they're really giving that sort of spirit of optimism and what can be done in this space. What could technology do for us as lawyers tomorrow to make our jobs not only easier, but interesting and exciting? And then to kind of finish off that theme and round it out, we have chosen three of my own episodes. Firstly, COVID-19 vaccines from way back in January. Will they unite or divide us? A question that I thought by now would be settled and very clearly is not. Um, And lastly, the conversations that I had both with Will Moy of Full Fact and also the experts on AI and algorithms. And both of those conversations brought into sharp relief the idea that democracy is absolutely intimately tied up with truth and fact and reality. Um, And that how we progress in the space of technology, again, we always have to come back to the underlying facts and the underlying data that both software and AI and machines, but also human beings are basing their decisions on. So I hope you find that these interviews as interesting as I did. And thank you very much for listening. The Hearing. 
Hello listeners, it is Yasmin. Happy New Year and I hope you had a lovely Christmas as best as can be expected in the current circumstances and I'm hoping that 2021 will be a better year for all of us. Well, we can start by helping you in that regard because we have a fantastic guest lined up for you. I was hugely excited when um, this guest PA agreed that um, she would come and speak to us on the hearing podcast. The next guest is Lady Hale. And I remember I texted a couple of friends because I was so excited to interview Lady Hale. And I asked them, what would you ask her? Well, they weren't terribly helpful. They said, oh gosh, we'd be too nervous and too starstruck. We wouldn't know what to say. Well, let me tell you, in this interview, you'll probably hear I was a little bit nervous and I was very starstruck. Why? Well, it's Lady Hale. She is a legal trailblazer. She was the first woman to be appointed to the Law Commission. She was the first female law lord and the first female president of the Supreme Court. Of course I was nervous. You speak about um, gender diversity and representation of, of women um, at the bar and in the judiciary. Um, I wondered whether there were any moments when you felt that your gender was an issue in, in your legal career. I suppose that throughout my life, because remember, I'm 75 years old, so uh, I was starting out on my career a long, long time ago. Only a tiny number of women went to university at all. There were fewer places at the high school for girls than there were at the grammar school for boys. There were three colleges for women in Cambridge and 21 colleges for men. Yeah. So already, you know, one's gender is uh, meaning that more is asked of one to get on than is asked of the boys or the men. And when I started out in the legal profession, I've forgotten the percentage, but the percentage of practicing barristers who were women was probably about four to five percent. Now, things have changed dramatically since then, um, really beginning in the 70s, they changed. But yes, I think one's gender did. It wasn't so much a disadvantage, but it just meant that one had to try harder and work mm. harder yeah. uh, than the men. But later on, I have a sneaking suspicion that it was an advantage because when it came to the Law Commission, we're talking now 1984, the beginning of 1984, I think that those who were choosing the new Law Commissioners, there were two vacancies amongst the five commissioners, were very pleased that they were able to appoint a woman. Mm. And I think when I came to the end of my Law Commission years and uh, I was invited to become a High Court judge in the old days of the tap on the shoulder. I think they were very pleased to be able to appoint another woman to the High Court. There were only six of us at the time. Mm. I think I was the 10th ever woman High Court judge. So, and I expect they were not displeased to be able to promote me to be the second woman uh, in the Court of Appeal and indeed to be the first woman in the House of Lords. You've had such a massive impact in the legal profession. I mean, obviously, as president of the Supreme Court, um, everybody knows 
about you declaring um, the Prime Minister's suspension of Parliament unlawful. Um, you were um, instrumental can, can in... I, excuse me, sorry Yasmin, can I interrupt and be a bit pedantic? Yes, go for it. What was unlawful was the Prime Minister's advice to mm. Her Majesty that Her Majesty should pro prorogue Parliament. Yes, thank you for that correction. I think that's and an important it, point to make. Well, it is in a way, and it meant, therefore, that the prorogation itself was null and void. Mm. But the, the unlawfulness was the advice to Her Majesty. Mm. Sorry to interrupt. But no, I'm no, absolutely. You, you put me straight. <laughs> I love it. Um, is that judgment? Is that a judgment that you're particularly proud of? Or are there other standout moments for you in your career? How do you feel about that judgment? Well, my main feeling about that judgment uh, was um, admiration and gratitude to my colleagues on the court and to the court staff. We were able to get the case on very, very quickly. Uh, we were able to sit uh, a full bench of 11 justices, that's the maximum number that serving justices that could sit. We were able to get the judgment out. We finished the hearing on the Thursday and we got the judgment out on the Tuesday morning. Mm. Now, that is fast work. Uh, and so that's my main source of um, satisfaction uh, about, about that. And I happen to think that we were entirely right. And of course, all 11 of us uh, subscribed to that judgment. So um, that uh, reinforces my view. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. The Cross-Examination. I'm joined here today to talk about all things vaccines, and I have got two fantastically interesting guests. Firstly, Debbie Ramsey. She's worked in a raft of multinational corporations all the way from BA to BT, but is currently Director of the Good Corporation, who specialise in business ethics. I'm also going to be speaking with Joe Nichols. He's employment lawyer extraordinaire and partner at Woods. And I'm very interested to hear in particular the intersection between ethics and employment law on the thorny issue of vaccines. One of the questions I always like to put on this podcast, and I suppose I do it because I want to normalise the practice of it, um, is how lawyers can challenge their clients in the privacy of a consultation about whether their actions are ethical. And I'm particularly interested because this is such a thorny ethical issue. What are the, what are the questions, Debbie, I think that you would like to hear lawyers challenging their corporate clients on in private on the ethicality of, of the vaccine, either whether mandating it to staff, not mandating it to staff, buying up private supplies? Well, I think we would always, um, certainly good corporation and lot lawyers, um, but we would always challenge our clients um, if we felt that something was unethical. And we would expect other professionals to do the same, um, regardless of the law. If something uh, that a company was doing we felt was unethical, we would we would raise it. And we, we certainly have raised in this, this pandemic, the whole issues um, around furlough schemes and the misuse of furlough schemes. So asking people to work when they're on furlough, for example, or the loans. I mean, there's been a huge amount, multi, I mean, 1.8 billion or something of, of loans that are deemed to be fraudulent uh, linked, to, linked to this. Um, so it is, 
it is responsibility of all professionals, um, I think, whether ethical um, uh, specialists or not, to challenge companies, employers, um, to think about what they're doing, to think about what the right thing to do is, as well as what they can do legally. Joe, are there kind of a sort of a set of ethical challenges that you think that you might be giving clients in, in the privacy of the lawyer's consultation room? As a lawyer, it is important to always uh, advise and ask questions about and around a particular decision or a proposal to implement a decision. So, you know, as a lawyer, we are routinely challenging our clients and advising them of risk. That is the nature of what we do. Um, and that includes the consequences of their decision, whatever that might be. And that usually doesn't, isn't limited to the law. It, it includes the practical considerations, the reputational considerations, um, the impact on staff morale for particular decisions, particularly when you're looking at changing um, significant issues in contracts, for example. And uh, so it's, not, it's never restricted to just what the law says and um, whether someone can do something or not. It is part of what we do to, to talk to our clients and make them help them to see what the impact of their decision will be. This idea of employers' rights on the one hand, human rights on the one hand, but the contractual ability of companies to say, no, if you're going to come into my office to fix a light bulb, you have to send an engineer who's been vaccinated. Um, what is the route through that? I think it's likely to happen in the in the short medium term i think you're likely to see more people um, and more businesses very openly saying you know we we are from a reputational perspective possibly a marketing perspective saying that we are determined to keep our customers suppliers etc safe and therefore this is our stance on the vaccine and you know right that there may be the right decision that may be motivated for the right reasons um you'd slightly wary of course that it turns into a bit of a political issue and and you have a um a very divisive or the next divisive issue that we have could be vaccines it's likely to be i think we've had masks of course prior to that brexit and it, and it feels very much that um you have to be in one camp or the other so so just to take the question, yes, you might see that uh, enforced by particular companies. There are risks with that uh, in theory. Um, uh, but in terms of a procurement stance, it might be a decision that they choose. Just when Joe was talking, I was thinking about the fact that we don't ask um, people to declare whether they've had a measles jab. But we do know that, um, I think the WHO World Health Organization says that uh, 95% need to be vaccinated. And once it falls below that, you start getting outbreaks of the disease, which is a really horrible disease and very easily transmissible. Um, and you wonder whether something similar to that is, 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 um, is going to happen with, um, with COVID vaccinations. It's interesting that countries like France, for example, um, have an 11 vaccine policy. And if you're not vaccinated, you don't get into school. So you don't go into nursery and you don't get into a school if you haven't had the 11 vaccines. 
Australia, for example, have a, a similar policy um, where parents um, will not get the universal family allowance if they don't vaccinate their children. So that is very much a stick approach as opposed to a carrot approach, encouraging people by um, telling people, persuading people why it's important. The hearing. So we're talking about Claros, which is an online dispute resolution provider. So you might say, I know ODR. It's, it's basically, you know, I'm providing online dispute resolution. This is done using cutting edge technology to help people get access to justice or simply resolve disputes that we wouldn't normally be able to do in as, as an effective, efficient manner, maybe a novel way. So we are talking with Federico Ast, who's founder and CEO of Claros. Federico, welcome to the podcast. Hi, hey Joe. Thank you for having me. Oh my goodness. No, we are honestly, we're really grateful to have you with us today. No question. And for context for everyone, we are spanning three continents right now, which I think is kind of cool. We have our, our producer extraordinaire, Kaylee Bodding in London. I'm in DC, Washington, DC. And of course, Federico, you are in Argentina. That's where I got first introduced um, to blockchain because it was, I think it was like 2012 or 2013. Oh, wow. and, early on. Uh, no, early, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I first um, learned about blockchain very, quite early on because it was something that some communities of computer nerds started to, to, like, to study or yeah, to at least to mention, right? And, uh, and I was interested in that because um, I, I had this, so I started to see in blockchain, you know, people were interested in the financial aspects, especially, you know, the, of course, cryptocurrencies are important and yeah, this is changing the world. But, you know, I was more looking into, okay, how can you use this technology for transforming governance, which kind of was in the middle of my, my two passions, you know, uh, you know, political philosophy and, and how can you use this technology to make an organization that in some way doesn't fail as Argentina had failed, right? And in particular, Argentinian startup communities and innovators, they, they were very early into blockchain because of the, the country history of high inflation, bad governance, corruption, all that. So if, if I got exposed to blockchain so early, it was because just because I am Argentinian, and that was the, the thing that was being discussed, right? And there was already some people in Argentina who were working in decentralized governance. Uh, in particular, um, one guy called Santiago City, who was well, my friend uh, now, and he was working on a project called Democracy Earth. Uh, it's how to use blockchain to make elections more transparent and wow. to fight against you know fraud. Uh, and, and all that, but I was I started to, to see uh, a different aspect. You know, there is also this very important part of the governance of a society of a community is justice system. How this community solves disputes, and uh, Argentina was <laughs> very much failing at that um, because of high corruption in the judiciary. So I kind of started thinking, okay, well, like why? And this, not, this was not only in Argentina, this was around the world. Like I was like, my idea was, look, wh why is this working so badly? Uh, basically because all of these governance tools we have are built with um, 
a very old technology. You know, this is the judiciary is built with 18th century technology, right? Yeah. Um, and I was like, uh, interested, okay, this, the, what we have now as justice system or as a legal system in general, is what some people in the 18th century like thought that would be a good way to resolve problems in a society, right? With what they knew and what, with the, for the problems that they had back then. But why, how would we build this like now? This was like, I guess like 2015, something like that. How would we build this with what we know now, with the technology we have now and for the problems we have now, right? That was the, the question I, I, asked, I asked myself when I started with this process that ended up becoming what, what now is, is clear of. So what that comes around to is you're taking this new technology, so the blockchain technology, um, and you're compiling that and pulling it together and then laying it into the direction of this online dispute resolution. So can you give us a little background behind Claros um, and what it does? In Claros, I can, like, we can make an agreement uh, where I make a contract with you uh, and I send them some money into an escrow account, a blockchain escrow, it's a smart contract. And then we agree that if there is a dispute in our contract, there's going to be a third party called Claros that's going to uh, select a number of jurors who are going to analyze the, the case. You know, they're going to see what was our agreement. They're going to see what was the product that you delivered. And then based on the, this, they're going to decide, okay, um, uh, Joe is right or Federico is right. And depending on how they vote and how they decide, and each of the jurors decide independently. So they consider the evidence independently and they vote independently. And so depending on what the majority decides, the money which is in the escrow is going to be sent back to me or, or to you, depending on, on who wins. So Claros provides this like kind of underlying governance infrastructure to um, like support this new global economy because you can make payments but you still didn't have a way to resolve a dispute between people in different like jurisdictions uh, and Claros can like provide that infrastructure that was needed for like further developing this globalization of the digital economy where everyone can participate so that's kind of the gist of what Claros does it provides securing property rights uh, for for a global you know economy where everyone can participate I, I totally I get the idea. It makes a lot of sense. So basically, um, I'm in agreement with you. So I'm the web developer um, in agreement with you. You want something built. Um, essentially, we both opt into this. And if there's a dispute, the money that um, we're disputing maybe goes onto the blockchain where it's uh, independent, almost um, autonomous organization that sort of holds on to it almost like an escrow account. So it's secure, it's safe, it's in the blockchain. We both know that it's there and it sits there until the jury um, actually makes a decision. Back then, imagine, you know, an Argentinian guy coming uh, to tell you that, you know, law is going to change. And yeah, it's going to be done in blockchain and it's going to work completely differently than what you know. People didn't believe it, of course. But, you know, uh, there's one thing that I, that Colin Rule once told me. Uh, I think that, well, Colin Rule, as you know, he was the he built a digital solution system at, at eBay and, and, you know, PayPal and then founded Moldria. And he mentioned this, this uh, sentence, uh, quote by, I think it was Gandhi, but I don't, I don't know if it's really Gandhi, but people typically say it's Gandhi. We'll pretend, no, yes. 
yeah, first they, first they, I don't remember, first they laugh at you, then they ignore you, then they fight you, and then you win. The Hearing. In this episode, I'll be talking to Will Moy, CEO of Full Fact, on the ethical duty of lawyers in the age of misinformation. For me, it kind of crystallised around the misinformation I saw happening in the Brexit campaign, particularly around employment rights, as I saw the people around me um, who I live in a, a, an area that voted for Brexit, and I saw the people around me voting for it uh, with a total lack of understanding that many of the employment rights that they enjoyed came from the EU, and they had no idea that they came from the EU. And I think that I, I, I am certainly very, very concerned, as you say, across family, immigration and, and employment and many other areas, that the greatest level of misinformation about the law is now rooted very heavily amongst the people it's supposed to protect. I think that's right. This question of referendums is important. In California, where citizens' initiatives lead to referendums that become law, um, they have an office of a legislative attorney whose job is to write an explanation of what the effect of those initiatives would be um, in legal terms for the general public before they are voted on. And we had in the EU referendum a peculiar mix of a topic which most people did not care very much about, and that's demonstrated in the polls. Most people did not know very much about, and that's demonstrated in the polls, and which was being actively misrepresented throughout the campaign. And I think the lack of clear, high-quality trustworthy information explaining what was going on that reached into every household in the country and talked about the consequences of the choices was a huge miss. We saw huge demand for the work that Full Fact was doing and we worked a lot with lawyers, academic and practicing, who supported our work on the EU referendum. We were top of the Google searches for the EU membership fee, if you remember the mm-hmm. debate about the number on the side of a bus. <laughs> and we know that we know that lots of people were crying out for trustworthy the information. And I think if we're going to have more referendums, we need to uh, really understand how we can provide trustworthy information to people in that context. But we also need to remember that lawyers are very often seen as partial. A human rights lawyer is an expert in human rights. They're probably also an advocate of human rights. And people who are concerned about a particular issue need to hear from messengers they believe are trustworthy about those issues. And I think there is a danger of lawyers believing that they are always the right people to explain the law direct (laughs) to the public and getting that right. But I just want to touch on that, that point you made about the people who are meant to benefit from the law and when that all falls apart. I don't yet know if you remember the tragic case of a young baby called Charlie Gard. I do. Charlie was born, he was very ill, as you'll remember then, and he became headline news. He became um, a a powerful, gripping national story for a few weeks as his doctors concluded that they could not treat him successfully and that they should withdraw treatment and allow him to die. They made that recommendation to the parents. They went to the court of protection over it, whereas the parents were not happy with that conclusion and they um, resisted it in court um, and it was a bitter and divisive and very public and very unhappy exchange. And the lawyers in that case were targeted 
and mistrusted. There were crowds outside of the hospital um, protesting at what was happening. I've spoken to people in the law and people in the NHS, all fearful for the relationship between both doctors and the public and lawyers and the public, trying to do their best. Everybody in in that situation, I genuinely believe, was trying to do their best for the child and the family with radically different views about what that meant. But the violence of opinion around them and how that was whipped up and possibly motivated and funded sometimes externally by political interests is a dangerous indication of what happens when we fail to explain the law well to the public and the role of the different people involved in legal processes. A lawyer's job is unlike a fact checker's. A fact checker's job is to give people information to make up their own minds. An advocate's job is to give people information that helps them make up their mind in your favour. <laughs> and true. it's a slightly different skill set. I think each can appreciate the other. Um, but the amount of effort me and my colleagues go into trying not to take sides is I would submit humbly to the excellent advocates of the bar <laughs> and the solicitor's profession, um, actually even harder than trying to be an advocate and argue to a conclusion because you have to confront what are the assumptions you bring to the table? What is the nuance of the use of language that pushes something one way or another? You know, A classic of this in the world of fact-checking is do we talk about government spending or spending public money or spending taxpayers' money or investing? All of these are terms that politicians would cheerfully use to refer to the same thing, and all of them have connotations and make something sound either like a great idea or a terrible idea, uh, depending on how you say it. So, yes, lawyers, I think, have a very strong evidence skill set. They also have a very strong communication skill set, but a slightly different one than those of us who tackle misinformation are usually deployed. The Hearing Today's guest is Laura Bates, and she really is one of the greatest feminists of our time. She is the founder of the Everyday Sexism Project, where women are able to share their experiences of everyday sexism that they experience both in and out of the workplace and in society generally. So I wanted to get straight in there, um, because you know our audience is mainly the legal profession. There'll be a lot of lawyers listening to this. So just tell us about how your work is impacting the legal profession. What is it that you do to help them? Well, um, my work broadly is about um, collecting and testifying to the extent of people's experiences of everyday sexism, which might range from series um, uh, experiences of workplace discrimination, of sexual harassment in and outside the workplace, uh, maternity discrimination and sexual violence, again, in and outside the workplace. And broadly speaking, the aim of the project is to collect such a volume of those testimonies that they force recognition and acknowledgement of the extent of the problem as it remains in today's society. We have hundreds of thousands of entries. And so um, at a general level, it provides a space for catharsis and for women in particular, it is mainly women and girls who send us their stories 
to share their stories in an environment where they are believed and in a safe environment and to feel a sense of community and solidarity and support from others, which often triggers a recognition that actually this isn't something they just have to put up with in silence. But also more specifically, what we found is that we can use the project entries from a particular area to drive change within that particular sphere or profession. So in any given profession and in the legal profession in particular, um, I'm often asked to go into law firms, to organisations and to speak um, more broadly about sexual harassment, about discrimination, about equality and diversity in the workplace, but then to bring to bear on that narrative the specific examples that we've collected from women in that sphere. So in this particular case, from women in the law. And the reason I think that's very important in, in the legal profession specifically is that it tends to be one of the professions where people are most sceptical about the problem existing. Um, there tends to be this assumption, well, it doesn't happen here. It doesn't happen in my profession. It doesn't happen to women in law. And there are a number of reasons for that. I think sometimes the very fact that it is the legal profession makes people kind of assume that it's somehow bulletproof or protected from these kinds of experiences. But I also think, ironically, that there is a particular issue with silencing and stigma around these experiences in the legal profession, which means women who experience them, who work in law, tend to be um, very reluctant to feel able to come forward and talk about them. So it really helps to be able to go into a law firm and say, you know, here are 50 experiences that women in law who may be, you know, your colleagues, people you might work with, very much people in your sphere are having. And I think that that can often be quite a big shock, both for individuals and for organizations but it helps to force a recognition of the fact that the problem really is rife here as of course in in every other sphere interesting and and you say that you know the legal profession is probably in, in a bit of denial about the extent mm. of the problem I mean do we have statistics or some evidence you know lawyers love evidence how rife is it you know sexual harassment abuse how big is the problem we do have evidence. So at a more general level, we know from a YouGov survey carried out for the Everyday Sexism Project and the TUC um, that over half of women and two thirds of young women say that they've been sexually harassed in the workplace. If you look specifically at the legal profession, there was a study carried out by the International Bar Association a couple of years ago. Um, they found that in the UK, 38% of female respondents working in the law said that they'd experienced sexual harassment. Um, and 62% of female respondents said that they'd experienced bullying. Um, we also know the other stats we have around this specifically are that reports of sexual misconduct to the Solicitors Regulation Authority have more than doubled over the past five years. Obviously, we have to treat that with caution. It doesn't necessarily mean that the problem has doubled, but perhaps that people are feeling more able to come forward to report it, um, which could be a positive development. But either way, taking those two statistics together, you can see that very clearly the problem is still something that exists and is pressing within the legal profession as well as elsewhere. So we, we know from what you've pointed out with the statistics you've given, this is this is a big problem. No one can deny that. So I was, wanted to move on, um, you know, what can men do? What can men who are in the legal profession do as allies to support gender equality? If they're hearing this and they're thinking, you know, I want to do something to help, to support yeah. my colleagues, female colleagues, what is it that they can do? 
Well, that's great. Um, if they are, that's fantastic. Um, the first thing I'd say is that it's worth getting a sense of the scale and the nature of the problem. The great thing about the Everyday Sexism Project is that it's searchable. So you can go onto the everydaysexism.com website and you can type in law or lawyer or even employment law or something about your specific area that you work in and have a look at the experiences of women in your field, which I think can be quite an eye opener and quite useful. The next thing I'd say, once you're armed with that information, is that everybody at every level can do something. If you are somebody in a position to affect policy shift, then that is something that can have a massive impact, whether it's looking at your workplace sexual harassment policy, making sure that those procedures are transparent, that they're victim-centered, that they're up to scratch, that everybody on your workplace knows what they are, what their rights and their responsibilities are, making sure, for example, that they don't simply say that somebody has to directly to a line manager because in many cases that might be the person actually carrying out the harassment so are they really robust procedures are they fit for purpose the next thing I think is looking at policies around flexible working around shared parental leave around childcare. all of these are things that can have a massive knock-on impact on that pipeline issue that we've been discussing and describing is there more that can be done to support women who are coming back into the workplace after maternity leave for example and are men senior men taking responsibility for these things because in too many workplaces it's left up to the women there is this kind of assumption that if a senior woman does manage to break through the ranks then she is somehow responsible for pulling up all the women behind her at the same time as concentrating on her own career it shouldn't just be up to senior women but also senior men to be taking that initiative but I'd also say that at every level there is something that men can do even if they're more junior If a woman is experiencing a a client facing situation of sexual harassment and she's finding that she isn't supported, then a male colleague speaking up alongside her and objecting alongside her can be useful. Women who experience these things have a fear that when they complain or when they try to tackle the problem, they might see their career penalized as a result. And actually men putting themselves on the line and speaking up if they've witnessed anything like this can be a really useful way to kind of buffer that. But even at a more minor level than that, A great example we had recently was that there was a woman who was in a workplace where she was constantly being asked to make tea and coffee and asked to take notes in meetings. And she was kind of just being pushed very much into a secretarial role. And she felt frustrated that this was very much a gendered practice and that it was impacting on people's perceptions of her in terms of how likely she seemed to be to be uh, considered for projects and for promotions. But she also felt that it was something so small that if she objected and said, no, I'm not making the tea, she was worried about being seen to be, you know, an overreacting snowflake. She had a junior male colleague who wasn't in a position to be able to particularly take action. He didn't want to report it because he knew that she didn't want to make a formal complaint. But what he realized was that there was something in his control, something he could do. And he started turning up at the meetings and making the teas and coffees a few minutes early. So it was a very simple way for him within the sphere of influence that he did have, which was relatively small, still to do something that made a a very significant difference to her. So for each of us, at whatever level of the of our career we're at, there is likely to be an opportunity, a moment when we are able to do something that can make a difference. We need to stop the idea that these machines are better than humans and we need to really stop and think about the huge risks of automating inequality, automating racism. 
Anytime you have something that looks at all computational or quantitative or is in any way even sort of loosely based on AI, statistical modeling, you know, it gets this sort of veneer of objectivity and science when in fact all these types of human decisions and norms and values get built in along the way. There's definitely a bias problem when it comes to product development, but the reason that this product team is so homogeneous is because there's a societal problem of power. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. The Cross-Examination. Hello, I'm Becky Anderson, and welcome to this episode of The Hearing, The Cross-Examination. Far from a science fiction, far future world of Skynet and Isaac Asimov, artificial intelligence and machine learning are already here and in widespread use, just not in perhaps quite the way that was imagined. And the big problem is that we have multiple instances of AI and machine learning systems which are embedding and perpetuating racial and other biases. And of course, they are doing it on a scale and at a speed of which human beings are not capable. I spoke to three wonderfully interesting experts on how this manifests, what it means for lawyers, and what we can do about it. The Cross-Examination My name is Sandra Wachter. I'm a lawyer and associate professor here at the University of Oxford at the Oxford Internet Institute, and I'm also a fellow at the Alan Turing Institute in London. And I focus on the legal and ethical implications of machine learning and AI. Bias and discrimination is one of the most important, most pressing issues that we have to confront when we think about good AI governance. My name is Ivana Bartoletti and my day job, I'm a technical director at Deloitte where I focus on privacy and ethics in artificial intelligence and data analytics. And I am a visiting policy fellow at the, the University of Oxford where I look at the international sharing of data. The problem here is that there is a lot of AI which is named AI, but in reality is algorithmic decision making which is influencing the life of people day in, day out. A chart, you know, I think is incredible now how much, how many applications are not reviewed by humans. Really? They are reviewed by automated systems. And AI and algorithms, we're talking about um, uh, predictive technologies used by authorities, policing, and, and to define whether somebody may be a risk of committing a crime, a risk of ending up in poverty, default in a payment. I'm Christiane Lum. I'm an assistant research professor at the University of Pennsylvania in the Computer and Information Science Department, where I study algorithmic unfairness um, particularly with applications to the criminal justice system. One of the areas I've been thinking about over the last several years is predictive policing, which is essentially using police records to train a machine learning or statistical model, sometimes these sorts of things are called AI, um, to make predictions about who will commit a crime in the future or where crime will occur in the future. And there has been a lot of concern, even before I did this work, 
about the possibility for these sorts of models to perpetuate racial bias. And so back in 2016, I did this project where we applied a real AI model, so a real machine learning model that's used to make predictions about where crime will occur in the future. And we applied that to data from Oakland, California. Specifically, we applied it to um, data collected by police on where drug crimes had occurred. And we wanted to see where it would deploy police in the future. So for context, when we looked at the data from the past, we saw that drug crimes were disproportionately enforced in black and Hispanic neighborhoods. So communities of color had drug laws enforced in them at a much higher rate um, than white communities. And so when this data, um, which only has the time and location of past police records, has nothing to do with anything, say like race, there's no input to the model that says race of person who has been suspected, nothing about, say, the demographics or the demographic composition of the location where the record occurs, nothing like that. Just the time and location of past records is all that goes into one of these models. Um, and when we looked at where this model would send police in the future, lo and behold, it sent them right back to the Black and Hispanic communities. And this is despite the fact that because the model does not take in explicit information about race, it was marketed as, say, race neutral. Wow. And in fact, what we found was that the the impact was anything but race neutral. And in fact, constant would would have, I want to be clear that it wasn't actually deployed. This We were sort of seeing what would have happened if it were, since this is a technology that was being deployed all over the place and Oakland was considering it at the time. But what we found was that it would have, in fact, concentrated policing back in the communities of color. The Oakland policing study is a clear case of what can go wrong. But how did we get there? And how do we know when we're getting a biased result? All AI systems have bias. The problem stems from the technology itself and the way that AI and machine learning works. In a very simplistic manner, you can think of an AI system as looking at historical data and trying to predict the future. So you're feeding an algorithm with all types of historical decision-making data past hiring decision, past loan decision, decisions about education. And you task the algorithm to find certain patterns and then predict the future based on that. And obviously, when we look at decisions that have been made in employment, in education, um, when it comes to insurance, loan decisions, decisions about criminal justice, very often those decisions have bias in them because humans are biased and they make biased decisions. So the algorithm will pick that up, embed it, and make the same mistakes again in the future the hearing so what i'm going to do is cut to the chase today so that you get to hear my conversation with stevie Giassi, founder of legaler and legaler aid among many other things hey stevie welcome to the show thanks for having me joe it's great to be here of course my goodness all right so let me let me preface this because I'm, I'm definitely very excited about getting into some conversations with you around legal tech but um I think of you, honestly, I think of you as the rock star of the legal tech world. And I'll tell you why. There's there's many accolades out there. I think about the Blockpreneur of the year a few years ago, according to Blockchain Business Magazine. I've seen you grace the covers of many magazines in that shiny look. I've seen also some conferences you've been a part of, clearly including uh, Legal Geek, which is one of my favorite of the year, uh, right next to Iltacon. But there's there's way more. I mean, there's so much stuff that you are involved with that I see you across the industry, which is so fantastic. And but not to embarrass you, um, and 
we were talking about this not too long ago, in fact. Uh, you have the voice of an angel. Honestly, <laughs> you have the voice of an angel, and I witnessed this. <laughs> the last time we were together was way too long ago, but you being in Australia and, and me either on the East Coast of the U.S. or wherever I am, um, there was an amazing sort of jam session that we we're all a part of. Uh, uh, take you back, whatever it was, 16, 18 months ago, where we were all in New York City. It was you, me, and a whole group of people, including other legal uh, tech icons like Andy Wishart, uh, who's now at Agaloft, I think, and then Ed Son at Factor. Um, those are some those are some crazy times. There were some fun times, and I'm looking forward to getting back to those things. <laughs> That, that is quite the kind, kind, kind intro, Joe. And um, uh, I think those legendary karaoke nights uh, kind of live on. And uh, I think we're waiting for the world to open up, not so much so legal tech can carry on, but so our karaoke jam sessions can uh, <laughs> continue. <laughs> I did want to be, I think, a rock star when I was a young age. And I had a bunch of friends from school that went on to become, you know, they had, they had quite a prominent band um, in Australia. And they, they did go on tour with some big bands like... Um, Pearl Jam, Oasis, which you know, I, was, oh, wow. I was a massive fan of growing up. And and I got lucky enough that I took some time off from um, uh, after the retail stuff. I, I opened a hospitality group uh, up north in Australia and I, I took a bit of time off and, and they actually went on tour with all these bands. And I got to um, I got to grace the stage and the tour buses with a lot of these you know, icons and trash some hotel rooms with Oasis and, and, and a, few of those, uh, a few of those guys. So, yeah, so I got to, I, and, I, and I got invited on stage one time to play a, a harmonica solo in front of a sold out crowd, which is just a crazy thing. But, but yeah, but it let, it let me live vicariously through them for a very short moment in time. And um, it, was, it was super fun. So, yeah, so that, that was a whole nother little life I got to live um, for. It went on for a few months and I, you know, I got to kind of uh, do some, there's some fun things. So, what did you what did you play in terms of music wise on stage with the harmonica? So there was one song in the catalog that they'd never played live, and um, they, they they promised that it was, it was kind of a thank you. Um, as again, we had we had a few months on tour with um, a couple of Australia's big bands, Powderfinger and Silverchair, and um, as a thank you, they they um, they sent me like this gift pack, which was kind of. Um, you know, it, it said that a driver would pick me up from the hotel on this particular day. There'd be a flight waiting in a penthouse suite in uh, in Sydney, and the, there was a sold out concert at the Metro, which is where I grew up watching all the bands. And I thought that was kind of a bit of a joke. And I actually, I turned up and um, I I wanted to be prepared, so I bought it because there's a harmonica solo in this song. And I was like, better better stop at a music store. And, and I bought a harmonica uh, kit. And before I bought that, I actually didn't know there was a uh, a different key for each harmonica. So it was actually, um, I was like, oh my God, what songs, like, you know, what key is this song in? <laughs> and so I still thought it was a joke, took the harmonicas to the concert and then they, um, they, you know, halfway through the, con the concert, they said, all right, we need someone to play a harmonic for this next song. And they actually just pushed me up out of the crowd. So it looked quite <laughs> organic, like someone in the crowd just got up on stage and then, um, yeah, and then busted out this song. It was called Air, but I, um, I, I played just, the harmonica solo and it was pretty crazy now that i watch it back where i actually had never played harmonica before but somehow something came over me and and it brought the house down to the point there was a review <laughs> the next the, the next day in uh in faster what's it called uh faster louder like the, the big music magazine here where <clears throat> excuse me it said that a punter from the audience got up and brought the house down with a harmonica solo so that was uh my little flash in the pan of you know being a rock star that is so cool <laughs> All right, so I'm I'm curious about um, how you go about explaining. All right, what level are we at with blockchain in the legal industry? When I 
when I started talking about it with uh, firms of all sizes, corporations and government agencies, I guess back in 2016, people were so skeptical. They're like, nope, not going to happen. And I, and I totally understand that. Are you still getting a decent amount of pushback or not as much pushback anymore? And then where do you see this stuff going uh, once people start to more it's, firmly <laughs> grasp it? Yeah, it's such a fascinating, it's such a fascinating question because, um, you know, timing is the most important thing with, with, you know, with all technology. And so, um, you know, this, this past couple of weeks, you know, if, <laughs> It, it, it just blows the mind, like these dog coins. Um, you know, I, I can just imagine being a lawyer and, and maybe Joe, someone that you, you spoke about to five years ago, telling him blockchain is going to change the world five years ago. And they're, they're sitting here now watching Elon Musk shilling dog coins. So um, I, think <laughs> you, you, I think you need to peel back the layers to see even with those types of things, what the real fascinating movement is. But but yeah, you know, being in the legal industry and, and you know all the things that we just spoke about, like analog checks, you know, doing things in a manual way. So it's kind of a big leap to start really talking about like digital contracts and all this type of stuff. And, and I think um, there's definitely a lot of, especially, you know, for, for myself, we, we've got a group of, you know, over a thousand lawyers now in this blockchain for law group, we've, you know, so there's definitely people that have been in the trenches doing the hard work and kind of immersing themselves, uh, you know, especially as lawyers in, in this field. But I think it's still super early. Like when you look at, um, you know, Elon Musk, you know, given he's got 50 million kind of followers um, can can shake a whole market with one tweet. I think that just gives you a little bit of a sense of how early this market is. And it's, you know, still very speculative. And there's, but but my, my thesis on this bull market this time around was that, okay, coins like Dogecoin that have had the, you know, time in the sun would actually disappear <laughs> and fall by the wayside because there'll be so much more of these mature projects with utility now that are doing great things. But it's a complete opposite. So what do I know? <laughs> but I think what it is doing, and this is the broader movement, is that it's it's democratizing and it's 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 consumerizing uh, cryptocurrency in a way that we didn't expect. And that's what's you know, super interesting because there is this whole generation now, you know, getting exposed to crypto in a new way. Yet they want to get rich. They want to do what everyone else does in business as well. But it's fascinating that um, you know the blockchain and and in general, like social media and the internet, um, now allow us to coordinate large groups of people and i think um blockchains are going to be even better at doing that because you know writing protocols are essentially you know writing rules to coordinate large groups of people and i often say myself that you know like the law is like you know um the operating system for society it's kind of the rules that govern how we work and blockchains now are going to become kind of that next step where we kind of you know write the rules of how we want things to kind of work and so it's it's really fascinating to me i think it's still early i think lawyers are kind of getting their the you know touch points with with crypto and blockchain in in a different way in in the initial days there's a lot of the Silk Road and I think that's thankfully changing so it was always nefarious um, you know uh, discussions around you know money laundering and I think people are realizing you know what no cash is used for that it's far better at doing you know uh, bad stuff than than crypto but now um, I think lawyers are getting exposed to crypto because they they might have a client that wants them to do an ICO they might have a um, someone that wants to try and, you know, create a proof of concept for, uh, um, you know, maybe a supply chain and they might get involved in smart contracts from that side of things. Or they might have uh, a fintech company or financial services company that's dabbling, um, you know, at the interface of a, a DeFi product or, you know, some type of financial product or, you know, they want to accept crypto payments in the business. So I think before you know it, um, you know, there's going to be 
all these little things and nfts right I, there's a lot of lawyers you know now trying to learn about oh my you know my um musician client who i never thought was going to ask me about crypto is now asking me about um the the legal rights um around an nft that they're, they're kind of selling in an auction and you know what happens to the commercial rights the non-commercial rights so i think you know no matter um how you look at it, this stuff's going to bleed into our lives until um essentially um blockchains become invisible like wi-fi the hearing it's yasmin here and welcome to another episode of the hearing podcast we're looking ahead to pride month and i'm talking to freddie mcconnell who is a trans man because very often when we talk about pride month we hear about the l we hear about the g not so much the b and even less about the t and even within that community less about trans men and Freddie will talk about his story um, and also talk about fatherhood as well and his court case. The case was something that arose out of my discovery of the reality of the situation for trans people who have children in the UK. Um, specifically, what happens to trans men who give birth after they've transitioned or you know, while they're transitioning. Uh, in my case, even after they have a gender recognition certificate which you know says that for all purposes i am male legally and there's no requirement of surgery or any other kind of medical intervention in order to get that certificate so there's no there's no sense in which i have you know been dishonest or anything like that I, that that is just my correctly acquired legal identity as it were so mm. but then i discovered just through online community um there's no kind of official advice about this because i think there's still this uh, assumption in the legal world and the political world that trans people like don't have full lives and we don't have families and none of this stuff really applies to us. But within community, I'd found out that trans uh, people who give birth, no matter who you are, if you give birth, you have to register as the mother. Um, and that's actually a law or a rule. It's not, it's sort of common law, right? So it's not written down anywhere, but that came about in order to, um, protect supposedly again in quote marks surrogates um so it took away the ability of a surrogate to not go to, to choose to not be registered as the mother they have to be registered as a mother and then um trans men fall into that category without any thought or awareness that we do or that we exist um yeah. as people who give birth so that horrified me and shocked me um i didn't i was very surprised i thought with my grc that you know i could register as the father or maybe there'd be some way to register as parent and i just felt that again similar to seahorse i was in a position i i knew i could sort of try and find a lawyer who specialized in family law um you know through through a colleague basically i, I asked for a recommendation and then that's how it happened i got speaking to someone and I had this great team suddenly sort of offering to represent me. And I thought, well, again, someone has to do this. And I feel like I have the capacity, uh, I'm strong enough, and um, I have definitely a deep sense of how unjust this is. So I'm going to do it. And then uh, when my kid grows up, I can say to him, well, if we win, then I can say, wasn't this great that we achieved this? And if we lose, I can say, well, I tried everything I could, and I'm sorry, but the world like wasn't ready um to understand but i tried you've just said you know the reality is you are your son's dad um and it's interesting that the court 
um, struggled with that in some way because I'm quoting from the Court of Appeal here. They said every child should be able to discover who their mother was. And they thought the child's best interest, you talk about your child's best interest is acknowledging the reality of the situation, what your relationship is at the moment, um, or what it is now. And, and they said the best interest, they disagreed, that is, is for the child to know its mother. Um, what, what do you make of that? Do you have any thoughts around that? That they've obviously got a different interpretation of the child's best interests. Well, they have and they haven't, right? Like, because actually we totally agree. It's, it's, it's the language they use, which mm. I found throughout was shockingly normative in terms of not being able to see beyond um, the nuclear family, not being able to unlink words that we have like mother and father from roles like biological roles like giving birth or providing your sperm um and yet our birth registration system provides many many instances in which that happens you know the hfea 20 uh, 2008 provides for um, a man who isn't trans who doesn't whose sperm is not involved in the conception of his child to be registered as the father um that, that's a, that's the example that, that comes to me but you know that there are lots of other ways in which our birth registration system has been amended and sort of things have been bolted on in quite a haphazard and sometimes seemingly illogical way to sort of accommodate other kinds of families so we we i have no um disagreement with the courts that every child has the right to know their origins every child has the right to know who gave birth to them i just disagree that that person is by definition a mother mm. we have so many different definitions of mother in this society um i don't understand why the legal definition has not been kept up to date with the social reality of what that word means in everyday mm. use um i think it undermines parental relationships between mothers who didn't give birth and their children. I don't mm. think this is just an issue that affects trans men who give birth by any means. I think it's really worrying reflection of how outdated and, um, yeah, and discriminatory the courts, the legal system is. The Hearing. Today, we are extremely fortunate to have Andy Wishart joining us from Agiloft a contract lifecycle management software company that he joined back in January of 2021 as chief product officer. If you know Andy, you know that he has been in the industry for 20 years, at least 20 years, and helping build companies that have innovative legal technology solutions. And he is an absolute legend in the New York karaoke scene. Seriously. Now, I think I hear a, uh, a Scottish accent, uh, <laughs> which right. which is fantastic, right? Um, Scotland is a, a stunner of a place. Uh, I was blessed to go there once. It was fantastic. But when I think about music and the music scene of Scotland, um, I think about Franz Ferdinand, Simple Minds. I loved Snow Patrol, still do. Uh, and the Proclaimers. Do you have any favorites from your native lands? Wow, that, that is a good question. Proclaimers have definitely got to be up there. And as you know, that might be one of my favorite karaoke songs. Um, but others, um, I think the first big gig that I went to 
was in Glasgow at the SEC and it was Jesus and Mary Chain. Um, yeah. and, uh, and they were, they were playing with Dinosaur Jr., one of oh my Pacific gosh. Northwest's best bands, in my opinion. Um, so that was one of my first gig experiences, which was pretty awesome. And in fact, next month or later this year, Dinosaur Jr. are, are playing uh, here in Brixton and in London. So I'll get an opportunity to see them again, probably 25 years later, um, <laughs> which just shows you my age. But yeah, um, yeah, I, 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 Proclaimers are amazing. They're from the local uh, they're they're local to me where I grew up in in Fife, um, uh, but yeah, Jesus and Mary Chain. They were they they were. I was a big fan when I was young. That's amazing and very topical. And just so people know, none of this stuff is ever rehearsed, and so it's sort of off the cuff. But uh, <laughs> so Andy, I do have I do have one last serious question that I've been been meaning to ask you for I guess quite some time now. Um, you got to tell me how this sounds. Um, all right, here we go. <clears throat> When I wake up, well, I know I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man who wakes up next to you. When I go out, yeah, I know I'm going to be the man, I'm going to be the man who goes along with you. But I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more just to be the man who walks a thousand miles to fall down at your door. All right. Yeah, I did that. So that was brilliant. <laughs> I, how was um, my so, accent? <laughs> well, uh, Joe, I, I'll I'll totally be honest with you. You're, you know, you weren't even weren't very good at that accent. But, <laughs> but your singing was pretty good, you know. Oh, it's horrendous, horrendous. But thank you for <laughs> bearing through that. All right, maybe the last question of the the moment. Be because you talked about where we are now and what's going on in the past, and I really appreciate that. But I guess going forward, so looking into the future, where do you see things going with contract technology? Um, and what do you think that impact's going to look like uh, maybe in a year or two, if possible? I know it's tough to do. We think a lot about where things are today and, and where we think that they would be going. And um, there's a lot of sort of current to old thinking around contracting, sort of thinking about contracts as this shield or defense, this sort of static document that is um, a shield um, that is maybe only uh, uh, looked at when a problem goes wrong. Uh, and I d I, we think that that's not the right approach, that we should be thinking about contracts as um, more than that, 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 they, that they are in fact this sort of relationship DNA, if you like, between two parties. They codify the things that we've agreed to do um, uh, during the term of this agreement. So there's locked inside those contracts, there is this sort of rich DNA that represents the relationship between two parties. And we need to bring that to life. We need to elevate the importance of that digital asset and, um, and, and recognize it for, for what it is. It's a really important digital asset, just like an employee record is an important digital asset or a customer record in your CRM system. The contract record in your CLM system is a very important digital asset and because it includes that powerful sort of set of data. Um, I mentioned the sort of reactive approach that perhaps we saw during the pandemic where lawyers were like, where are my contracts? What's in them? What's my exposure? Um, and that sort of passive, that current sort of 
passive approach we think needs to be more proactive that there there should be more proactive discovery of the contracts that are sitting within your repository so that if if the event if events are changing in the external environment whether that is something like the pan pandemic or there is a change in regulations um uh that uh legal departments are more proactive in the impact that those changes will have that they can they can identify the contracts that perhaps need to be remediated or uh, amended as a result of that change and that they can do that and complete that process in a really efficient way the hearing 2020 and 2021 have both been massive years in terms of the way that our society and our roles as lawyers is shifting and changing and i would like to extend an invitation to you now to join us for 2022 to see what else is going to happen in this space and what we as lawyers need to know about the world that we're living in if you have any ideas for an episode or if you have any comments on the episodes that we did this year or in previous years then please do um, contact us and let us know because we always love to hear your views the hearing a legal podcast from thomson reuters to find out more go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcasts